And I am filling in for Marshall Danby, who's one of our regional directors. Uh, his home is in Roan Mountain, Tennessee, but uh, they had a home in Corpus Christi for a while. They're one of those um, folks that lived six months in Tennessee and six months in Corpus Christi. And finally, uh, they said that was a long ways to come for the six months. And so they sold their home in Corpus Christi and bought one in South Carolina. And uh, that's a little bit closer. Plus, Marshall is so involved in the prison ministry that he's involved in in Tennessee that he doesn't want to leave it for that long. And uh, in about a half a day or six hours drive on the road, he can be back at the prisons. And uh, so he'll just leave his wife for a half a day or so or maybe overnight and, and still uh, conduct all the classes that he does. So I have his PowerPoint on the... Uh, screen here and I don't know that I'm going to say anything about it unless someone has a question but every now and then I'm going to push this button and if there's anything on there that you want to write down uh, or ask a question about I've looked at it and I've printed it out and I've got access to it but uh, the topic is helping the incarcerated experience new life. When uh, Marshall called me yesterday, or actually it was the day before, on our way up. He said his wife's brother, Lowell, and we need to keep them in prayer, is uh, in the last hours of his life in Rogers, Arkansas. And so they were already here in Memphis and uh, turned around and went to, to Rogers. And uh, they're still there, heard from him this morning, and just sort of an hour by hour thing. So please keep uh, Marshall and his wife Glenda and her brother Lowell uh, in your prayers. So Thomas called about uh, five minutes later because he got the same message and he said, okay, who's going to fill in for Marshall, you or me? And uh, he said, I've already got a couple of other classes. And so I said, I'll, I'll volunteer to do it. What do you want me to say? And he said, just say something. <laughs> so I've got a broad... Uh, range there and that always gives me a chance to tell my parrot joke uh, about the guy that was over in the Far East and met the fellow that was selling this very talented parrot that could speak five different languages and he thought about his mother in Memphis Tennessee that would love to have a talented parrot like that and uh, so he bought it cost him about five hundred dollars Cost him about that much to ship it uh, to Memphis. But uh, a few days later, he calls his mother and says, Mom, what did you think about the bird? She said, well, it was kind of tough, but I ate it anyway. <laughs> and uh, he said, Mom, I paid $500 for that bird. It could speak five different languages. And she said, he should have said something. <laughs> so I'm going to say something about helping the incarcerated experience new life. Uh, the letter up here uh, just tells you about a guy writing. All of us in prison ministry have gotten these letters. Uh, I need to change. I'm ready to change. Um, I need help. I can't do it by myself. What do I need to do? And uh, the next letter, uh, I think, actually says, what do we need to do this way? 
well, we may not have to worry about pushing this thing. Uh, you want to try it? Just every now and then, why don't you push it? it, it get, give us a little. Give us a little. T- oh, I thought I did. Okay. So, um, first of all, I would say, have you have you done that? Pretty simple. Have you experienced the new life? And I'm not talking about necessarily uh, whenever you first came to Christ. I'm not talking about whenever you said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you were buried in baptism and you arose, as Ephesians 6, 3 and 4 tells us, to walk in newness of life. I'm talking about that time in your life. You may call it an awakening sort of a a second new birth. (laughs) You know, when all of a sudden you said, wow, uh, this is real, this is my life, and I need to change, and I can't ever go back to being the person that I was, Even, even the Christian that I used to be, because now I've gotten a glimpse. I know my purpose, I know my mission, I know what this is all about. And I need to get busy about the Lord's business. Now, if you have experienced that, it makes it so much easier to tell someone else, regardless of their location or their residence, whether they're in a jail or a prison or in your neighborhood or wherever they are, uh, for you to explain to them what you did to experience the new life. All right, so that fellow said he needed to make a change. I'm still, where do you aim it at the TV at? Okay, I got you. This is step-by-step instruction on how to experience the new life of using this PowerPoint. All right? Let me suggest to you, and I suppose I can write over here, what I call five ingredients for change. Now, you won't find this uh, in a book or even in one of our New Life Behavior lessons yet uh, because I haven't written it. But... uh, (laughs) I got started in going into jails and prisons in 1971. It was a few years ago. And uh, very naive, totally inexperienced. Uh, It was a learning experience for me, one experience building on top of another experience. And um, boy, it's just been an amazing journey. One of the things that I began seeing very early on was the need for follow-up. The need to help people after they become Christians. I was going into jails and prisons and teaching and baptizing a lot of people. And at first I thought that's what it's all about. Just teach them the fundamentals and baptize as many of them as you can. And as soon as you've taught and baptized one, Uh, offer them a towel and go teach the next one and get him wet. And all of a sudden, I began thinking, you know, wow. 
is so much more than that. One of the things that we've got to do is invest ourselves in the individual for the long term. Not just for the rest of his life or the rest of your life, but we are looking beyond the grave and the coming of Jesus and we're looking at eternity itself. Uh, where it really makes a difference, where the rubber meets the road, is when these men and women are released. Now, they can't wait until then to start making further changes in their lives, in their new life in Christ. Uh, true, we may teach them, we may baptize them while they're still incarcerated, and we help them to grow to the degree that they can grow in that environment. Don't you just hate to hear people say in prison, people that you work with, uh, whenever I get out. It's not about, it, how do you know you're going to get out? It's about uh, what you need to be doing right now, where you are at. And I tell them, you can do so much that I can't do. My hands are tied. You know, in a little bit, they're going to come get me and I got to leave this place. You get to stay. And, 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 I, and I'm, I'm handicapped because how do those guys know that I really mean what I say? Have you ever thought about how much we're asking them to trust us? I said, if I were to stay just 24 hours, if whenever y'all go back to the house, I go back and I get in my bunk, and then a little later we go to chow, and we go to the pill line, and we, we go to this, we go to, and then 24 hours, and you watch me, and you listen to me, pretty soon you can have a pretty good idea. Is this what this guy really believes or not? But you've got that opportunity because you're here for this period of time. And you need to use this time as best you can to grow. And then whenever you're released, uh, you'll grow in some other ways and in some new ways. We've got to prepare our congregations for men and women who are getting out so that they can help them to continue that growth process. So in 1983, we opened a 12-bed residential program in Corpus Christi. And I thought that was just the most important thing for us to do at the time. We no longer operate the 12-bed residential program, but we still do the same thing that we did then. Uh, we just... Uh, uh, don't have the, the draw on our dollar uh, for the residential cost. So we take people wherever they are. If they're coming out to live at Grandma's house or they're coming out to live in the halfway house or they're coming out to some uh, post-treatment program, uh, then we continue to work with them. And then as they tra tra transition from those places into an apartment of their own, usually starting with an efficiency, and then going to something else and to something else. But our congregations have got to be ready 
Wow. But that's just, just doing a little tiny bit at a time. I thought it was going to do that whole slide. I'll leave that up there for you a little while if you want to write those things down. 10,000 minimum, 10,000 a year are being baptized in the United States today as a direct result of jail and prison ministries of Churches of Christ. Now you start thinking about that. Five years, that adds up to what? 50,000. 10 years, 100,000. Sooner or later, those men and women are going to walk out those doors. And more and more of them are going to be walking up to our church buildings and our communities, walking through that foyer and saying, I just got out of prison last week. Now what is that congregation going to do? You know, well, at first I thought what I need to do is prepare the congregation where I'm at. And we have to start with where we're at, right? But we can't expect everybody in the United States getting out of jail and prison to come to the congregation where we're at and that we have prepared and taught and trained to follow up on. We have to be concerned about all of our sister congregations all across the United States. And that's part of one of the reasons that we have these workshops like this. Hopefully, we're all going to get a little bit better at what to do and what not to do with men and women whenever they come out of prison. Now, let's see what Marshall put up here next. 2 Corinthians 5.17, that is the theme passage for New Life Behavior Ministries. If a person is in Christ, he is a new creation. Absolutely. And then notice that you've got the works of the flesh on the one side, the fruit of the Spirit on the other side. The question helping the incarcerated experience the new life is how do you go from the works of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit? I want to suggest number one on our five ingredients that a person must see himself or herself as salvageable. Anybody ever had any business with a salvage yard? You know, those places, do, do they make money or what? Those are money makers. And they're dealing with Scraps, leftover pieces, junk. <laughs> wow. See, but I've got to see myself not as junk. I've got to see myself as salvageable. And there are a lot of folks that don't see themselves that way. And a lot of those folks are in the jails and prisons that we go into. And you can spot them a mile off. Now, some of them have a little bit of hope. Sometimes I tell people I'm in the rope business. That's uh, short for hope. <laughs> you see, and you give them a little bit of it. Rope or hope. And what can they do? Pull themselves up or hang themselves. Yeah. So I got to have hope. And sometimes what we have to do is jumpstart them with the hope that we know that is in them. 
that they can't see in themselves at that particular time. It's kind of like on one of those cold winter mornings when you see someone over at the side of the road and, uh, or maybe still in their driveway at the house and the hood is up and they go around to the neighbors asking what? Can you give me a jump? Yeah, you got cables. <laughs> and so sometimes what we have to do is jumpstart them with the hope that we know they have even though they, at that particular point, don't see it themselves. Now then, we can quote what Genesis 1.27 were made in what? The image of God. And God don't make junk. So we've got hope. See? But they're not just going to immediately have hope because we read them a Bible passage or we hand them a tract. Uh, they've got to see in us, again, remember that trust factor. They've got to see in us, hear in our voice, sense in our passion, believe in our investment in them, that we believe there is hope that they can change. Uh, it's, it's just essential. So if they don't have it, we've got to jumpstart them. If they've got it, then we've got something to build on and go from there. Right, who is willing to help me? Hopefully that's you and I. Point number two in these ingredients is I'm looking for an intense level of desire to change. And sometimes I'll just tell my class. Sometimes I've told congregations. I'm not naive enough to think that we all came here today. In fact, in this room, 102, is that right? Uh, that we're not all in this room with an intense desire to learn how to help the incarcerated experience the new life. There's different levels of desire. So in our classes in the jail or in the different levels of desire, and I am looking for that person, sometimes just one or two people in the whole class. But you can tell pretty quickly who has that intense level of desire. And guess what? It just is natural that I invest more of myself where I see that interest level being the greatest. Now, can we build just as we can grow hope? Can we build interest from a lower level to a higher? Absolutely. And sometimes you'll see that during a 13-week session, like our New Life Behavior classes are set up to do. And we can see that level increasing. Jesus, remember when he went to the well, in John 5, found the man who had been there for 38 years in that condition. What does the institution say about someone that's been in prison 38 years? Can't change. Institutionalize. That's the word, isn't it? They ain't ever going to be any different. If they get out, they're just going to come back. <laughs> yeah. 
One of the guys that works in our office, many of you know and have asked about him, John Henry Pruitt, spent 37 and a half years in prison. He came out and he changed. But I'll guarantee you why he changed starts with, number one, and he had an intense desire, unlike at any other point in his life. And whenever you're at that point, you are willing to do anything. It's like the difference between life and death. So Jesus asked that man a very important question in that verse. Remember he said, do you really want to change? Do you really want to be healed? And the guy didn't even really immediately answer the question. He started giving all the excuses on why he didn't get to the water first. That wasn't Jesus' question. Do you want they get well. And that's the question that we're asking of those that we want to. And, and granted, we're just going to give more of ourselves to those that we see the yes answer in. We're looking for that intense level of desire to change. Okay, here's a number of different lists if you want to write some of those down. Those who are willing to help. And you know, there are many organizations and there are many programs. Sometimes uh, I talk to people about our Christians Against Substance Abuse program, the CASA program, and it's a great program. But sometimes when we have a success, I've just thought, you know, I don't think that we need to necessarily brag too much because I think it has more to do with these Two points. When a person has reached that point where they're sick and tired of being sick and tired, and they have such an intense level of desire to change, they could go to ABC program or DEF program, <laughs> and it would work because they're at that point in their lives. What we need to be is looking for those people coming into contact with us and our ministry, whether it's GHF program or some other program, so that we can at least not hinder them in the change process. Okay. All right, let's look at, see what he's got up here now. If I always do what I always did, I will always get what I always got. I don't know if that's good English, but that is Mark Twain. I could have the abundant life, as the Bible says. Number three on our five ingredients is receipt of the truth. What does John 8.32 say? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You see, I believe that the power is in the gospel. It's not in us. It's not in our programs and techniques. Uh, it's no trick. It's just the gospel. And when it's planted and it's watered, God gives the increase. 
Uh, people will change and people will grow. Uh, however, uh, all of these are a part of one piece. I don't know if you were like me whenever I was uh, about 10 or 11 years old. We lived sort of in the country. And uh, so I would go over into all of the neighboring pastures and climb up the trees, especially in the springtime, and check out the bird nest. And uh, I'd come back and I'd tell mom and dad, I said, there was two eggs yesterday, there's four eggs, five eggs today. And I particularly like, we had this particular bird, we called a jackdaw down in South Texas. And boy, whenever those little things would hatch out, they'd have a yellow part right here at the beak. And of course, when I climb up there, uh, the mama bird would take off and the little baby bird be sitting there with that wide open mouth hollering. And uh, I think if we could interpret bird talk, that bird was saying, feed me, feed me. And I think with it, sometimes our people in jails and prisons, they're at that point. If we could just recognize it and capitalize on it, and at that point, tell them the truth. And maybe they're that way as they, as they walk out of the institution and they're about to, to live, begin to live their new life outside the institution. Uh, but they're saying, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And this is where I have found guys like John Henry that have been in prison for almost 38 years are so helpful. He can tell them what he did when he got out that helped him. And you know, if it helped him, it'll probably help somebody else. And not only that, uh, we are capitalizing on the fruit of what we're about. Well, we're putting these ex-offenders uh, who have transitioned successfully into the community and into our local congregations in a positive way. And that's a part of this piece as well. I operate on the heat in the kitchen principle. You know, if it gets hot enough in the kitchen, what will you do? Get in the refrigerator. <laughs> you'll, you'll change uh, the thermostat. You'll raise a window. You'll turn on the fan. Uh, you'll open a door. You're going to do something because you don't like to sweat. I know I don't. And I have found that a lot of times that is exactly what increases the level of desire to change to make one receptive to the truth. Again, becoming sick and tired of being sick and tired. We just need to be there to give them the truth, to feed them, and to feed them properly, you know, and not, not choke them, not give them so much at one time that they can't digest it, or on a level where they can understand it at that particular point, which means that we're going to have to individualize what we're doing. Uh, I thought our brother Ross this morning uh, in our opening session, uh, his comments were so appropriate. It isn't about numbers. You know, it is really about the individual. In fact, one of the reasons that we shut down the 12-bed residential program, you know, when you've got 12 people, you've basically got a team. You've got a team, you've got to have 
rules and regulations. And if you got a prima donna, uh, uh oh, you know. And, and every time we would fail with some guy, the elders would say, "But well, what could we have done to have succeeded with this guy?" And over and over again, we kept coming to the same conclusion. We needed a program for this guy. Not for 12 of these guys that each one were different. Uh, we, you've all already heard everybody in here has got a story. And we're all different. We don't all need the same thing. We don't all need to be fed the same thing at the same time in the same proportion. As I understand this new birth process, we start out as babies. So we're on a milk diet. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, we gradually move those who by reason of use exercised, and now then we're on to the meat. We've got to be wise enough to see that. You know, the real concern that I've got here is jails and prisons where we're not where we don't have any workers, any volunteers. And, and I know that in every one of those institutions, I don't know how many of them are at this point, but I know that there are some of them at this point, and whenever they're saying, feed me, feed me, they're being fed junk food, spiritually. And they're being told stuff that doesn't work. And my concern is how many times have you ever thought about this? How many times in the same person's life, we heard people been to prison nine times. How many times will a person go through this process, come back around, see himself as salvageable, once again have an intense desire to change, once again say, feed me, and then be fed the wrong stuff and fail, go back to prison. How many times will they come back that point again. We need to be there when they reach that point, and we need to be there and tell them the truth. It's my choice. Plant and water, we talked about that. Some of the resources and the growth of prison ministry. Let me share with you number four on the ingredients. I call it walk down victory lane. And you can use a lot of examples. In Acts 8, uh, you've got Philip and the Ethiopian treasurer. What does he do? He joins himself to the chariot. By what? Insistence? By invitation. I think 1 Peter 3.15 is, uh, is the plan for the Great Commission. Not going and cramming it down people's throat, but being ready to give an answer to those that ask you. Don't be answering questions people aren't ready to hear the answer to, or answering questions they're not asking yet. Just get ready to give an answer when they ask. He was invited to join him in the chariot. He taught him. They get to some water. How many of them get in the water? Both of them do. <laughs> uh, we get in there with them. What about the next chapter? Oh, Saul of Tarsus. And he becomes a Christian. Ananias tells him what to do. 
He was asking the question. And Ananias gave him the answer. And then he wanted to join himself to the disciples. That's the verse 26 that identifies when we talk about placing membership. You know, just becoming identified as a member of the body of Christ in a particular place. So now he's transitioning from Damascus to Jerusalem. And he gets there and some of those brothers say, Hey, ain't this the same dude they used to? And they're going to hear that when they get out of prison too. Hey, isn't this that same? Yeah. And I try to tell the guys, just own up to it. Yeah, it is. But he's kind of different, isn't he? Because of that new birth process and, and, and that process that is still ongoing. When John Henry got out of prison after doing those 37 and a half years, we wanted him to come to Corpus Christi. Well, he had to do his last little bit in the federal prison. In the federal system, they want you to go back where you came from. So they wanted him to go back to Tarrant County, Fort Worth. We wanted him to come to Corpus Christi. So they called me down, downtown. The feds did, and they, they uh, wanted me to bring my file on John Henry, be ready to answer their questions. And so I had a big, thick file, and John Henry had already released to me his entire criminal history. So it was a pretty big file. And I get down there and they said, Mr. Griffith, are you aware that in 19 such and such, Mr. Pruitt did this? And I said, yes, sir. And they said, well, are you aware that in 19 such and such, Mr. Pruitt did this? And since he got out in 92, it's all 19 something. And uh, after a while, that got sort of monotonous. And they said, well, if you know Mr. Pruitt did everything so bad that we've got a record of here, how come you want him to come to Corpus Christi, Texas? And, I said, man, that's the easiest question you've asked me. We believe that the old John Henry Pruitt did all those things. But we believe a new John Henry Pruitt is coming out of prison. And folks, if we don't believe that, we ought to just shut this down and go do something else. But we believe that change is possible. And so... Guess who steps up to the plate for our brother Paul? Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He puts his arm around him and what does he say? He's with me. He's with me. And that's what we've got to do with men and women that are getting out. As they show up at our places, you know, he's with me. She's with me. Uh, I don't care how long you've been in this business. Uh, I've been in Corpus Christi now for 38 years. Uh, still somebody comes in the foyer. Somebody will come look me up and they'll say, Bro Brother Buck, one of, one of your guys is here. <laughs> what do they mean? <laughs> I know what they mean. <laughs> and I'll go get them. And, and where are they going to sit? They're going to sit me, with me and Ms. Griffith over here. And, uh, and we're going to sit about three, three rows from the front. The last thing they need to do is sit on that back seat or in the cry room. Sometimes I go in the cry room just to cry. But uh, one time we had one of the deacons. You know, this was back probably 35 years ago, back when between Bible school and worship, you know, a lot of the brothers would go out on the parking lot and take a little puff, and, and when the deacon came in and said, Brother Buck, there's a bunch of your guys out there in the alley 
smoking. And I said, what are they smoking? <laughs> and this deacon, he didn't get it, you know. And he said, well, well, well cigarettes. Oh, oh, that's all right. <clears throat> yeah. I, I think the same thing that happens in our local congregations needs to happen here. I don't know about you, but whenever I'm preaching at home, and a lot of times somebody will tell me before the service, now I'm going to respond this morning, I need to be baptized, or I need to rededicate my life, and, and uh, you know, whenever they come, start coming down the aisle from wherever they're at, I know what they're coming for. But as they start coming, almost every time, somebody else starts coming simultaneously from somewhere else. And I know they're not coming for either one of those things. What are they coming for? Like Barnabas to say, I'm proud of you. You're doing the right thing. Absolutely. And that's walking down victory lane. And they don't have to do it alone because they've got us. And if you've been there and done that like John Henry and, and others, then, hey, you're really equipped to help. Uh, sometimes uh, when a person gets out, we know they're getting out, uh, we'll have a dinner already arranged. And several of the prison ministry workers just, uh, they're our guests at, at that dinner. And they get to meet them personally. Sometimes they've gotten letters from them. These are the people that have graded their Bible correspondence courses. And immediately, you see, we will all remember this person's name because it's just one of him. But if there's a half a dozen or even a dozen of us that have taken him to lunch, he's more likely to remember some of those names uh, than he would if he just left the assembly and left the service. So walking down Victory Lane. Just talking to Don Humphrey in the hallway a few minutes ago. Don is the owner of Quarry Press, and we have partnered with Don in... Uh, producing our own recovery Bible, our 12-step Bible is going to be called Journey to Recovery. Hopefully that'll be finished in August and available. People keep calling all the time about it. And uh, we've run into several snags along the way. That is a huge <laughs> process as we're learning. Uh, using the New American Standard Version as our version, uh, along with reflections and insights, that will be, really be a great help, especially for those of you uh, in substance abuse and using uh, the CASA program. The Meanest Man in Texas is probably one of the first books, certainly the most popular book that Don wrote on the life of Clyde Thompson. And uh, some of us in here were privileged to know and work with Clyde before he passed away. But that's a great book to give to inmates. There are two versions, as Marshall has noted on here. One you get from Quarry Press or uh, on Amazon.com. Those are about 16, 17 bucks a copy. But we also have a pris prison edition that you can get through New Life Behavior for $6 a piece. And it has a Bible study in the back of it. Uh, a Bible study based on each of the chapters in the book on the life of Clyde Thompson. And there's so many men and women that read that book and they say, uh, that's my life. You know, that's my story. And uh, they realize that they too can change just as the meanest man in Texas. Little things matter. This is a list of things that 
uh, Marshall put down that he likes to do differently as he teaches his New Life Behavior classes and some spe specific things that may or may not work in your situation and each one of us probably do a few things a little bit differently that are real meaningful uh, for us as we teach our classes. The point is you make it personal and you make it meaningful and these are some things that have worked uh, with Marshall. Number five on my list of ingredients is that the cycle is completed. In other words, this person, guess who's best equipped? Uh, this person goes back to this person then and helps that person through the change process. And I can't tell you that there's anything any more meaningful to help that person keep on changing and stay fresh and not become lackadaisical and indifferent and fall away than to stay involved in the change process. So we have ex-offenders that have gone through the process of training, becoming approved volunteers in the system. Uh, first of all, going back in with some of us who are not ex-offenders and then eventually earning the trust of the chaplains and the wardens to the extent that they're teaching the classes themselves. And they do a great job, especially with our Managing My Anger course, with our Substance Abuse Recovery course, with Attitudes and Behaviors. Uh, these are ideal courses uh, for them to teach. And it's what they've lived. It's what they have done. For those of you that have not met Marshall, this is a, a picture, if you can make that out well enough. And uh, it's almost like having it here, but not quite. Not quite. And then he returns to those first two letters, the one about I'm ready to change, but I can't do it alone. I need help. And this fellow was writing, asking for the attitudes and behaviors course, if you remember the full letter at the beginning. And thank you for teaching me that God loves me. Uh, that may be so simple to all of us, but what a lesson to learn for a man or a woman incarcerated. So going forward, be mindful of what we can do with what we have and where we are. Kind of a, a review. Any questions? Oh, let me give you a passage on this one because I think it's very good to have one on each of them. And this is Mark 5. Remember the demon-possessed man? <laughs> and after Jesus cast the demons out, there he is dressed and in his right mind. And he wants to walk and stay right by Jesus' warm side the rest of the way. But Jesus says, no, go back home and tell your family, your friends, what the Lord has done for you. And it's just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. You know, it's what worked for me. And we can do that too. Uh, you know, I just think uh, we make things so difficult. You know, like uh, telling somebody else about Jesus. We got to go through a class and get a diploma or something. You know, uh, how did you become a Christian? 
Uh, and you know, everybody's got their story. I'd, I wish we had time for everybody to tell about their conversion. And sometimes we were baptized in a creek in a pond with the frogs and the tadpoles and sometimes in a river, uh, hopefully not downstream or upstream, but uh, whichever way it is, you get moss in the nose or maybe it was in the bay or the ocean or in a nice baptistry in a church building, maybe just a few roaches floating, but if you're in South Texas, <laughs> but uh, whatever the story is, you just tell your story. And what, whenever you start telling your story, you get passionate about it. That's your story. That's how you became a Christian. And then someone else gets excited. Sir? Right. May have been in one of our portable baptisteries. DC, you had a question? A horse straw. There you go. I just wanted to stop drinking and drugging. Yeah. You know, Pinky Bates, bless his heart, that passed away some years ago. He used to say, I thought if I just stopped drinking and drugging, everything would be all right. And then he came to realize that, boy, he needed to change a lot more than that. In fact, he often said when he quit drinking and drugging, he remembered why he started drinking and drugging in the first place. <laughs> it was easier than dealing with life. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I have a question. I'm Desiree from Knoxville, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Amen. Thank you. Uh, I'll be doing the certification class right after lunch, and we'll go through all of the courses and uh, talk about that then. So if you'll be in there, you'll get all that information. Or we've got our booth down the hall here. Yes, ma'am. I love it that you're going to have a recovery Bible. Oh, absolutely. Yes. That's, that's the only way to do it. You bet. It's offbound. Let, let me close with uh, one thing I always like to close with. Uh, uh, it, it's in the CASA material but because I wrote that one. It, it's uh, the golfer that's a lot like me. They can't never hit the ball straight. Hit a country mile but can't make it go from right to left. And so I always found lots of extra balls that way. Uh, I golfed with a guy, though, that said that wasn't the object of the game. <laughs> and uh, I held him up. But this golfer hits way off into the rough, and he finds his ball, and there it is on a giant anthill. Doesn't bother him, just sort of tees the ball up for him. So he pulls out uh, the iron of his choice. He gets back, and he swings a mighty swing through, completely misses the ball, kills 10 or 20,000 ants. 
Lines up again, swings through, completely misses the ball, kills another 10 or 20,000 ants. Continues stroke after stroke, greatest ant massacre in the history of the world. <laughs> Finally, two ants come out and say, you know, if we don't get on the ball, we're gonna die. <laughs> so let's go out there and uh, help some folks change. Thank you very much.